Welcome, everybody, to the Flashpoint Podcast. Uh, my name is Owen Higgins. I am your host, as always. Um, today is Tuesday, May 10th, um, and we're going to be talking about uh, some political developments in uh, the world's most populous democracy, uh, the country of India, where uh, the far-right government of Narendra Modi um, has been, I think probably safe to say, kind of continuing uh, its attacks and assaults on the country's uh, minority populations. Um, and, and that has been uh, uh, both state violence and state-sanctioned violence. Uh, this has been going on uh, for quite some time. Uh, there, uh, obviously, the tensions there uh, are, are older than, than the Modi government itself, but uh, th things have definitely kind of ramped up and escalated uh, lately. And uh, so joining me uh, to talk about this is Sachitra uh, Vijayan, a writer, essayist, and uh, photographer, author of the critically acclaimed book Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India, uh, which is available through Melville House uh, Books in New York. Uh, also, she's the founder and executive director of the Polis Project, a hybrid research and journalism organization uh, that does some work, although it's not pro uh, solely focused on, on India. So... Uh, so, Chitra, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, and, yeah, I guess if we could just maybe start just by talking a little bit about what is uh, going on at the moment in India as far as the state violence goes and these attacks on minorities. It does seem like things have escalated in, in recent days, uh, in recent weeks. Is that accurate, um, or is this kind of more of a continuum of, of attacks? Hey, thanks for thanks for having me, and, and thanks for um, discussing about what's happening in India because it's kind of hard to get um, people's attention, especially those who live outside of the country, because India continues to be called the world's largest democracy, but in reality, um, things have been going bad for a while. While many people consider um, Narendra Modi's regime since two thousand fourteen has been marked by various kinds of violence. We have to understand that state violence itself is not new to India. Uh, the Indian state has always been a very, very violent state. Um, often the people who have faced its, its worst happen to be those marginalized. So we also have to think about this in a continuum. But something did change with Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Narendra Modi coming to power. And I think what it did was that it took existing cleavages, it took um, existing differences, and what was always a very bad scenario and made it into a really, um, into a complete political, um, it's a fire that is spreading. And in early 2000, what you really saw, I think the patterns of violence have also changed. Early 2000, what you really saw was something called collective public violence, where you saw civilians who were inflicting a very specific kind of political violence against the country's minorities. Uh, often these were Muslims, uh, Dalits, and other marginalized communities. And in this scenario, in the early to, early 2014s, what was happening was that civilians would be the main instigators of violence, and often this violence would go unpunished. Or many of these cases of lynching still languish in 
courts and nothing is really being done. And by the time 2019 happened, what you really saw was the state becoming very much a part of this violence. They no longer just stood back and watched. Now they became active enablers of this violence. And in the last year, what we've really seen is that the violence is just, um, you do see that the instances and the types of violences increasing. And often the ones who have been at the direct receiving end of this have been Muslims of India. You've seen hate speeches. Um, you've seen all kinds of direct violence targeted at, at them. In addition to violence, you also see a lot of legislations that directly target Muslims, whether it's the hijab laws that are banning uh, women who wear hijab from um, access to education. Uh, we have these love jihad laws that prevent interfaith marriages. You have food laws that stop um, you know, people from uh, eating beef. So what you really see is not just state violence. You also see a lot of other kinds of bureaucratic and legal violence that's playing out in India right now. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um, it's. I think it is important, as you say, to, you know, to stress that this has been going on uh, for quite some time, but that, you know, this is an escalation in terms. I think also, you know, for anybody who's listening, either, you know, either live or on replay, you know, uh, India has uh, over 200 million uh, Muslim citizens, uh, which makes it, uh, I think, I think that's the, is that the third largest? I think it's the third largest uh, Muslim population of a country in the world, uh, certainly the, the largest Muslim minority population uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, the, the, these ethnic tensions, I think, have been ha have been going on for some time. Like you said, um, back in 2000, there were these street battles, uh, these kind of more like, uh, I, I guess, more kind of publicly driven rather than state driven. Um, it does seem like there has been a shift, though, and I think that that uh, has certainly coincided with Modi and uh, the, the the political movement uh, that he represents. Can you kind of explain that for uh, for listeners a little bit? Like uh, who Modi is, like what what political the political party that he represents, and uh, and kind of how him coming to power is an expression of this kind of more far right, this more extreme uh, element kind of ascendant in the government. Sure. Um, I think to understand Modi again, with everything India, um, nothing is specific to the present. We really have to go back to the la larger and a broader history. Um, Prime Minister Modi belongs to the BJP, which is the Bharatiya Janata Party. They have been elected now, uh, but Modi has been elected to uh, term twice, but this is not the first time that they've won electoral victory. And often the BJP comes out of a larger formation of right-wing, violent, ethno-nationalist groups. And they actually uh, borrow their ideology from the RSS, which then borrows its ideology from Italian fascists. And again, this, while politically now Modi's in power, you really have to think about this as a hundred-year cultural and political project. So while Modi has been in power now, what we really have to think about is that the ideological foundations of BJP and RSS is something completely different. What they really believe in right now is BJP has always been a Hindu nationalist uh, right-wing government, but increasingly what you see is a violent assertion of India as a Hindu nation. 
India was never envisioned as a Hindu nation. India was always envisioned as a secular, um, a pluralistic democracy. And one of the key things that the BJP government has done and continues to do is to rebrand India as a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation. And increasingly, what you see is that they borrow a lot from the Israel playbook. They borrow a lot in terms of the messaging and the language. And a big part of Modi's political and cultural battle is also recasting India not as a country, a young democracy that has a much longer history, which is plural, which is uh, multi-ethnic, multifaceted, uh, people speak different languages, come from different uh, food and political cultures, but rather recasting India itself as a Hindu nation that has survived despite various invaders. And a big part of that is casting India as minorities, especially Muslims, as the invaders. And, um, and I think those are some of the things that actually go against reality, but also it goes against what India really stands for. And one of the other principles of the right-wing BJP party is that it's called the Hindi-Hindu um, ideology is that they also believe that all of Indians should speak, are connected by a single language. While India, um, it is multilingual, what they really want is to remake India as a Hindi-speaking nation, as in one, erase its plurality and create it as a Hindi-speaking nation. It's a Hindu nation and it's a nation made for uh, Hindus and not as a secular democracy. So these are some of the main contours of this. But each of these things can directly then have very specific cultural and political implications, especially for people who have to deal with these things every single day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think that's worth like getting into a little bit more. Um, this kind of uh, Islamophobia, this, uh, it, can, can you actually explain who the, who the Dalits are uh, real quick, just just for listeners? Just because, you know, like uh, with an American audience, with primarily American audience, some of these terms are not going to be super familiar. Um, so if you could kind of explain who who, who the Dalits are and, and, and where they kind of fit into uh, Indian society. And then and then kind of maybe we can talk a little bit about the prejudice um, and, and kind of the ongoing uh, ethnic tensions that have been kind of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of... Um, really fueled by, by, by Modi and his government and, and the political movement that they are a part of? Sure. Um, one of the things I would definitely do is um, I will try and stay away from using the word ethnic or communal. Um, I know a lot of scholars of South Asia continue to use these terms, but I believe that these terms no longer really explain what's happening on the ground. Um, India is a deeply hierarchical society. It's a society that is divided. People are divided by the ca by the caste system, which is predated, uh, goes back to thousands of years. And what you have in India is a community. Dalit communities happen to be treated as um, within the hierarchy of discrimination. They fall in the lowest of the rung, and often have been historically and politically the community that has faced the most discrimination. It's a community that continues to be under um, discriminated. It's a, a community that continues to face immense um, violence. While caste system is often seen as belonging to Hinduism within, the sub within South Asia, 
caste system is actually something that other religions that are um, within India also have adopted. You see caste within Islam, you see caste within um, um, Muslims in South Asia, you see caste within Christians in South Asia. So almost hierarchies that are violent continue to exist. Of course, India's um, constitution, the founder of India's constitution, Ambedkar, very clearly talks about how the constitution itself guarantees these equalities to all of them. But since 75 years, while legally there is equality on paper, true equality has never really been uh, achieved. Within that, what you really have is that in India, it's really hard for us to only talk in terms of communal lines because history and memory in India is very, very local. What perhaps is true of um, Bihari Muslims might not be true of Muslims in the south of India. Similarly, the experiences of Dalit communities in one part of the country might not be the same as the experiences of other. So I think what we really have to do when we talk about India is while we can generalize about certain things, we have to be really, really, um, we have to be responsible and make sure that we locate each of these communities that have faced immense violence within their very specific historical context. Um, and often you cannot talk about caste without talking about religion, and you can't talk about religion without talking about caste. Gotcha, yeah, okay. Those are, I mean, those are definitely good uh, good distinctions to make. Um, so with, you know, within this caste system, though, within this, I mean, like, like I think broadly speaking, it would be fair, right, to say that, uh, that these groups are being uh, discriminated against. Right, that 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 um, that that they are being targeted um, in in a prejudicial way by by the current government with its with this kind of Hindu supremacist Hindutva uh, ideology that they have like specifically gone after after these. Uh, uh, if I'm trying to think of like the right term, just just about you know just anti uh, anti Islam, anti anti Dalit. Right? I mean, would that be would that be a fair way to to, uh, to describe it? Yes, um, I think they have gone after anyone they believe uh, doesn't fit into their mold of who they believe um, who they believe is one of them. So you have to understand that BJP's Hindutva is at the core. It's casteist, it's Brahminical, and it's patriarchal, and they want to create one kind of a Hindu citizen, which means that yes, the violence is. The genocidal violence that is playing out in India is against Muslims now, and historically, uh, Dalits have been targeted. But we also have to understand that they're now going after Christian communities. They're going, churches have been vandalized. Um, Christian missionary schools are now being targeted. Um, they're going after um, rights activists and human rights defenders. Um, not all of them belong to the Muslim. And while vast majority of people who have been arrested and who are now held as political prisoners come from uh, Dalit, Muslim and Bahujan communities. Uh, Bahujan means... Um, communities that are historically considered oppressed. Um, what we really see is that they are now going after almost anyone and everyone they believe is against their idea of what India should be. So yes, Muslims and Dalits have been the ones who are being uh, disproportionately targeted, but we should not take away the violence against the Sikh communities. Um, 
the Christian communities, uh, women, um, um, all kinds of people that they believe go against their idea of what India should be is now um, is being targeted. Yeah, and some of the work that you've done with uh, with with Project Polis have has talked specifically about uh, violence and threats towards journalists. And you know, this kind of seems like like um, like what you're talking about this kind of war on information, this war on dissent. Um, and it does seem like in India uh, that that the that the attacks on the attacks on the press uh, have been have been quite difficult, have been quite bad, um, and and have been getting worse. Uh, is is this is this this is all kind of part of the same thing, obviously? Um, but do you think that this is part of the, like the part of this movement trying to make sure that no dissent comes out, that there's no possible way uh, of any kind of information that might uh, disrupt their, uh, I, I guess, for lack of a better, like propaganda, like like the way that they want to view what they're doing, they want to view their project, they want to view uh, the country. They don't want uh, journalists to go out and to kind of expose this stuff or write about it or, or even to even not to not to expose it, but to write about it in ways that might cast it in a negative light. Would, would that be accurate? Is that kind of what we're seeing here? Um, it is. But I think we also have to understand that long before this happened, um, we have to look at the landscape of, of publishing in India. And this is true of publishing. Um, I would say in the United States as well. Um, yes, there are some incredibly brave and brilliant journalists who are trying to report and they are being systematically targeted. Um, and you can see who they're targeting. But even before that, I think what we really have to understand is that vast majority of India's media, especially um, television journalists uh, or media houses, are now owned by a handful of people. So diversity in terms of opinions and ideas is just impossible. Of course, there are a handful of um, organizations that try to militate against this trend, but they always tend to be under-resourced, underfunded. So I think we really need to talk, think about the ownership of media landscape, the most powerful media outlets that reach millions of, if not millions, hundreds of millions of Indians every single day tend to be owned by people whose sympathies, one can say, is still very much with the BJP. Uh, one could argue it's commercial, others could argue it's political, but end of the day, the ownership is important. Second, um, India's um, newsrooms are not very diverse. Um, they tend to be, um, they still tend to be dominated by a very specific kind of people who tend to be those who come from immense privilege of caste, class, wealth, and resources. And I think these things already distort the way news is being presented in India. For example, a lot of the journalists, uh, even those ones one would call as centrists or liberal or, or critical of the government, when it actually comes to reporting on national security, still report not what's happening on the ground, but report what the government tells them to. Um, even those who are considered respectable journalists continue to report um, in favor of national security 
uh, and they they openly talk about how their reporting is patriotic. So I think even before we go to a handful of journalists who are incredibly brave and continue to do this work, the system itself is completely skewed. Now, the most dangerous journalists in India are not the English-speaking ones. It's actually the journalists who are reporting for local newspapers or on the ground. And if you look at it, they are the ones who are consistently being targeted. Then you have Dalit journalists, Muslim journalists who are targeted, uh, again, because of their identity, because who they work for. So once you take away all of this, what you're really left with is a handful of journalists on the ground who are doing incredible reporting, who don't get the platform or the resources or the international fame or acclaim for doing the kind of work that they do over and over and over again. Within these groups, we now have journalists who have been picked up under sedition laws for reporting. Uh, Sadiq Kapan, uh, Asif Sultan, the list is long and we actually keep uh, an existing list uh, we keep we, we keep mapping what happens to journalists and the ways in which they are intimidated. So they they are sedition laws. Uh, journalists are picked up. They are beaten up. They are uh, arrested. Um, sometimes, especially in Kashmir, they are now doing counter counterinsurgency style sweeps in the houses of journalists. Um, so all they need to do is, if you're a journalist, they would send a counter terror unit to your house without due process, without cause, and then they will search your entire house. Um, again, you see that um, states that have the BJP government in, in power are the ones that are most violent uh, towards the journalists. So what you're really seeing is a landscape that is very, very dangerous. So between May, 19, May 2019 and August 2021, 235 journalists were attacked based on the mapping that we did. And the biggest perpetrators were the police and the politicians who belong to the BJP rural states. And finally, the biggest concern is that the judiciary, which is supposed to protect the journalists, have been at the forefront of prosecuting journalists for the crime of reporting. And what you really see is that many of the times the judges themselves um, issue, um, don't issue bails, um, they actually contribute to the persecution of the systemic violation of the rights of the journalists. So let me let me let me just ask for a little bit of clarification there. Um, you know, uh, so you're talking about um, you know all of these like maybe center left liberal even 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 maybe left uh, journalists who are uh, you know like doing some good work as you said, but but they are kind of you know repeating and reporting what the what the government tells them to. Um, you know, I, I mean, I assume that some of these uh, journalists are still are, are nonetheless being targeted uh, by these groups by um, by by the right wing. Uh, I, I guess I'm I'm kind of curious as to as to what that means, kind of about like this anger movement that is going on. If it's going to be uh, targeting even people who are essentially just repeating uh, what the government tells them to. I mean, like it, there is a difference, right, between uh, the government itself, like the state violence as far as like the government led violence and then this kind of um, uh, kind of more public street violence that we're seeing uh, coming from uh, maybe like the, the base and the, and the grassroots of this right wing movement. Right. I mean, is, is that an accurate am, am I making that distinction correctly? 
Um, I think, yes. But I think, as I said, all things India, um, nuance is always the key. And it really varies depending on who you are. Um, I don't think there are any left journalists in India anymore. Uh, but um, I think the more famous journalists, the ones who have a huge platform, um, when it comes to certain issues, still continue to do, you know, the story of what about the two-sidedism, right? Where you're saying, oh, yes, they did this, but what about the other person? And even those who follow the government's uh, position um, on things like Kashmir and national security reporting are not safe if they try to report what's happening on other issues. So no journalist in India is really safe unless you're actually reporting what the government wants you to report. If not today, eventually they'll get you. Um, having said that, there are a handful of journalists who have continued to report bravely, and they often report on local issues. Uh, they are not the ones reporting on India Kashmir, but they are reporting local stories. They are reporting about local corruption. They are reporting about things that actually make these governments look really bad. Um, and those one, those journals are the ones who receive disproportionate amount, um, are the receiving end of disproportionate amount of violence. Often Delhi-based journalists, English um, language journalists tend to come, this is where the caste and class privilege also plays in, uh, tend to come from the privilege of access and other things and have predominantly been safe. And if you look at the journalists who have been picked up, you have Siddiq Kapan, who is a Muslim journalist from Kerala who was arrested for reporting on the rape that happened in UP. Uh, and his charge sheet says, we are arresting him for reporting on human rights violations. Uh, Asif Sultan similarly was arrested uh, because he refused to um, not disclose his source. And the government felt that he, again, wasn't doing uh, stories that were um, favorable to the government. Um, similarly, you have the recent arrest uh, of Kashmirwala's editor. Um, and there are other, other journalists who have all been picked up. And often the FIR says the reason for arrest and sedition charges are that the journalists are actually not reporting something in favor of the government. So what you're really seeing is that they are going after people who are reporting about their communities. Uh, I think it's very important for us to really place this in the context of who is powerful, who has access to power, and who they're going after. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I mean, you had talked about the uh, the judiciary um, and, and how, the, you know, how the judges are kind of uh, continuing uh, these, you know, allowing these prosecutions to go through. Can you talk a little bit more about you know, the, the, the failure of uh, the judiciary and, and and how that's kind of contributing to this uh, almost, I mean, like, I don't want to call it societal collapse because I think that that's an exaggeration, but it certainly feels like we're, we're watching uh, the end, the, the end of a certain way of, of even, even if it was just idealistic, like the ideal of pluralistic de democracy, like, like you were saying uh, earlier on, I mean, obviously as you're saying, like there's nuance here. Uh, we're talking about one of the biggest countries in the world with uh, just, you know, the many, many, many uh, smaller areas that, that all have their own histories and past that, that go back a long time. But, uh, but it does seem like something has changed. Something is starting to 
really like 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 more than being contested like kind of almost uh be seen as as a part of the past and i'm wondering if you could kind of talk about how the judiciary and other uh state institutions contribute to that um that kind of decline sure um I think one of the things that BJP very strategically did was to make sure that institutions, all kinds of institutions, uh, legal, judicial, administrative uh, institutions that could um, manage a very effective um, balance of power was destroyed from the beginning. They went after the planning commission. They went after how judicial appointments are done. Um, the way that they really believed that the system is going to work is that Modi always ran a prime ministerial election as a presidential one. And he continues to see himself and the party and the party itself sees itself as the source of power. And within that, what you really saw with the judiciary is that the judiciary consistently it's not that judiciary is giving out just orders. So they do this by two ways. One, the Supreme Court of India today hasn't decided on some of the most important issues affecting India's democracy. A few years ago, a series of constitutional challenges were put before the Supreme Court of India about India's electoral bonds and, and voting machines. The, the challenge is very simple. It said that, listen, if, if the number of um, votes... If the, if the number of uh, clicks in a voting machine doesn't correspond to the number of uh, votes, if they don't tally, so the election is, you know, obviously the number of people who vote should tally the number of votes received. And if that number doesn't tally in an electronic voting machine, how can this be declared as a free and fair election? It's a very simple question. They haven't ruled on that. I think it's been about four years now. And there have been journalists who have consistently done work on this. India has something called electoral bonds, which makes it now impossible um, to track where political funding is coming from. So there's a challenge against that. It hasn't been cleared. The Modi's government in its first term uh, put out something called demonetization. The legal value of that is now being challenged. The Supreme Court hasn't decided it. It's been, that was 2016. We are in 2022. They haven't decided it. When Article 316 was, uh, 370 was revoked, um, and a series of measures were put in place. Um, the Supreme Court of India still hasn't listened to it, hasn't, hasn't even heard it. Uh, a bunch of habeas corpus petitions were in, in put in front of the Supreme Court about journalists who are being held under sedition laws. So the Supreme Court just has failed to even listen to these cases. So they're just not even, they're just even refusing to listen. So that's one kind of abdication of duty. The second is an instance where I think the real blow happened with the Babri Masjid decision, where with the destruction of Babri Masjid, the Supreme Court of India said, yes, the destruction of the Babri Masjid was Ill it was criminal and illegal, but and still... Can you, can you just explain what that is really quick? Sure. So the Babri Masjid decision, so Babri Masjid was a mosque, which was torn down by a group of... Um, vigilantes belonging to the VHP and other RSS and BJP members uh, who then decided that this mosque was actually the birthplace of the Hindu god Ram while there was no archaeological proof for it. And then 
almost over 20 years ago, they went in and they charged into the Babri Masjid and destroyed the mosque. Of course, there is architectural uh, evidence that this mosque has existed uh, for much longer. So this came before the Supreme Court of India in 2019. Um, And then the Supreme Court of India said that while the, the destruction of this mosque was criminal and illegal, it still granted the mosque's physical space to the same community that actually caused and destroyed the violence. And I think that was seen as a moment of great, um, not just abdication, but also the moment when the Supreme Court, which is always held with such great regard, while for a long time, I mean, the Supreme Court of India has, again, you have to understand that Supreme Court of India is also a deeply casteist and a classist organization. Vast majority of the Supreme Court justices are men. They belong to a certain specific caste. They come from immense privilege. And since then, you've seen a series of instances when the Supreme Court has either refused to see the plight of the common man or has sided with the government in a way that is so political that people no longer believe this is happening. And this is not just the Supreme Court. For instance, when the Delhi violence was happening in um, 2020, there was a judge who was actually transferred uh, who said that the violence has to stop. This was not a Supreme Court judge. This was a high court judge. And the moment he ruled that this violence has to be stopped by the Delhi police, he was very quickly transferred to from Delhi to Orissa. Similarly, the lower courts now often refuse to grant bail or throw away cases that are launched against journalists with no merit. And even if the lower courts sometimes do follow the law, what you really have is the higher courts stepping in and tone policing the lower courts saying that, no, you, you cannot follow the due, due process. So what you're really seeing is a court that has been completely defanged and that no longer does what it's meant to do, which is hear cases and pass judgments based on fact and law. And they, I think they've stopped doing that a really long time ago. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's certainly, I mean, the, the abdication of duty is just crazy. Uh, you know, just, just refuse. I mean, that, because that is a way of ruling on it to simply uh, to not rule. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about um, the, the destruction of the mosque um, and, you know, the way that they uh, uh, tore it down. And, you know, we, we've also seen uh, recently uh, bulldozing of Muslim homes and destruction of property and businesses as part of this kind of ongoing uh, violence uh, against against these uh, these these minority groups, um, what is it about that? Because you did talk a little bit before, like you you did mention. I, I was wondering if maybe we could get into that a little bit more, like talking about how that's kind of a lesson learned uh, from the way that uh, Israel treats the Palestinians. Um, is that uh, is is it a uh, is it something that that like that that is an, a very aware kind of tie between the two? Uh, or is it just you know just a similar thing? Or is there some? Or is there like a real like one to one relationship? Um, is 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 this something that is coming directly from you know uh, interactions with with the Israeli uh, government and the way that they treat uh, the 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 Palestinians? 
Um, I think um, there's a there's a there's a really great book, and I wish more people knew about it. It's called Pogrom in Gujarat: Hindu Nationalism and Anti-Muslim Violence in India. So a lot of what we see today was actually perfected in Gujarat when Narendra Modi was the chief minister of the state. And in Gujarat, you saw a bunch of new techniques being deployed on the ground. One, they specifically went, well, this has happened in previous uh, riots that targeted Muslims, is that in the case of Gujarat, they very specifically went after Muslim-owned businesses, Muslim properties, um, an electoral list with names of Muslim houses was circulated. Um, you really saw a kind of playbook emerge that was specific and very, very clear in terms of what they wanted to do. They not only wanted to make a show of um, spectacular physical violence that would play out on the streets so that people could see what they could do, but they also went after the livelihoods of people. And what you don't realize is that the people, especially the Muslim communities that were displaced during the Gujarat pogrom, many of them have not returned back home. And during 2019, when the Shaheen Bagh protests were happening in Delhi, a lot of the young Muslim students who were now living in Shaheen Bagh area or who had come to the protests spoke about how their families were, dis and these are young people now in their 20s, so they must have been like really young when Gujarat happened. Talk about their family's history of being displaced from Gujarat and moving. And I think we really have to understand that this kind of playbook was already in place for a very long time. With After Gujarat, with the series of other anti-Muslim violence that happens in India, you really see that playbook being perfected over and over and over again. And with the Delhi pogrom in 2020, you really saw a very different kind of uh, tactics emerge, where they not only targeted Muslim homes, um, you know, the day before the police uh, knew what was going to happen, they stood back and watched. Um, even with UP, uh, you know, they went after Muslims and they said, so this is what happens. So every time violence happens, they target the Muslim community and very quickly, the victims of the violence are then very quickly rebranded as the instigators of violence or the perpetrators. And very unconstitutionally and illegally, these same communities are then targeted and they say, now that you have caused the riot, we want you to face the consequences. And we're going the way you face the consequences is that we're going to bulldoze your house. So I think this kind of bulldozing the house is a very Israeli playbook, which is now being deployed in India. The real Israeli playbook that you see played out happens in Kashmir. I was in Palestine and the occupied territories in 2008 and 2009. And by the time I came to do my work in Kashmir in 2014, when I first got to Kashmir, there was a certain kind of familiarity to the landscape of how Kashmir was being policed and surveilled that already felt very familiar like Palestine. And I think a lot of this playbook, the Israeli-Palestinian playbook, you see it more on the ground in Kashmir. But the bulldozing is definitely something, it the bulldozing kind of seems to be a new thing. They have targeted Muslim houses for destruction, businesses for destruction before, 
but the physical demolition of a space and completely recreating it a bottom up, that seems to be something very, very new. And that seems to be playing out now. Um, the same thing with picking up young boys. Uh, physically, the police uh, humiliating these young boys before they take them away. Um, the way in which women are made to come and stand. So there are a lot of similarities, but I think um, the, the, the Israeli playbook is very obvious in Kashmir. And increasingly, you see more of these techniques being implemented and kind of put out in mainland India as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, you know, maybe maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about Kashmir a little bit because um, it is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it a number of times and, and it is obviously, you know, a really important uh, part of the, the politics, not only in, in India, but in uh, uh, Pakistan and China as well. Uh, this contested area where I think, um, and, and I'm sure you, uh, you'll correct me if I have the date wrong, but I think it was uh, in, in 2020 or 2019, maybe uh, there was a real like upsurge in, uh, in violence there and, and India kind of uh, shut things down. Uh, what, what is going on there now? I mean, it's been pretty quiet uh, at least, at least for Western audiences uh, since that flare up. And then obviously, you know, with, with COVID and everything, um, I'm assuming that, that, you know, that it's still pretty tense there. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, has, has there been any kind of, uh, resistance that, that is, that has been able to make much of much of a dent here or, or is it just kind of the same status quo where, where there's a lot of tension, but, but not a lot of ability to, uh, to kind of get out from under, under the thumb of the Indian state. Are you talking about Kashmir or are you talking about uh, the rest of the... Kashmir. Kashmir. Specifically, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I think we have to understand something is that Kashmir has been under some kind... Um, today we could call Kashmir Indian. Um, so before it was Indian administered Kashmir, today it is Indian occupied Kashmir. Um, and that is because um, long before Article 370, you have to understand that um, Kashmiris have faced indiscriminate state violence um, since the early 90s. And this is something that um, throughout the 90s you saw um, um, you saw the state really clamp down on what it thought was any kind of resistance. So this kind of the insurgency was really, really put to completely destroyed and put to an end by late 90s and by early 2000s, what you really saw was a new generation of young people coming of age. And by 2008 and 2010, uh, what you saw was a pro-democracy, young people-led protest from the street. Um, in 2008 and 2000, 2008, 2009 and 2010, saw the largest number of Kashmiris get on street. So I think a million people were on the street in 2010, um, where there was a slogan of Lal Chok Chalo, and like people were like, we are going to fight. So insurgency and the violence that happened in insurgency, of course, there are mass graves, landmines, the story of destruction of the people of Kashmir in those years is just painful. And you also saw the exodus of the Kashmiri pundits. You saw so much that happened during the time that completely devastated the Kashmiri community, both in Jammu and Kashmir. But the moment you have a pro-democracy protest of a million young people on the streets, I think the Indian state 
really didn't know how to respond to it. And I think one thing that all of us have to understand is that the Indian state for the average Kashmiri has always been the same. Um, and what you really saw now with Modi coming to power is the revocation of Article 370. With the revocation of Article 370, something far more insidious happened. Of course, you had the biggest um, digital ban. Uh, eight, over 8 million Kashmiris were violently silenced for over three months. Um, no telephones, no internet. Finally, you have some semblance of communications coming back up. But even now, digital bans are very much a reality. Again, these curfews and digital bans are not new. You had something very similar happen in 2016 as well. So what you really have to place everything is the large, large, long history of rights violations, uh, robbing them of dignity, and consistently murdering young people uh, whenever a chance was presented. But since 2019, uh, yes, there's a long continuum, but since 2019, it just became impossible. Now they went after journalists. Every single publication is shut down. Journalists have been targeted, hounded. Sajad Gul was picked up. Um, um, Kashmir Wala's editor has been picked up. And almost it's just impossible for anyone to report. But the real, real, uh, another hit that happened was in November 2020. In 22nd of November last year, Kuram Parvez, who is an internationally renowned human rights defender from Kashmir, who uh, is part of the Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil, Serv uh, Civil Society. This is a non-profit legal organization that has been documenting war crimes, documenting rights violations on the ground for over 20 years now. And often the JKCCS office is the place where many of us would go um, to either understand what's happening. Um, it was a place where young people, researchers, journalists, human rights defenders, everybody went there because this was a place where all of us met, would work, would understand what's happening. Kuram was picked up and he's now, again, Kuram um, is also disabled. He lost his leg in a landmine blast almost 20 years ago. Uh, Kuram is immensely well-respected. Um, the UN Special Rapporteur actually said that he's not a terrorist, he's a human rights defender. Uh, and yet nothing happened. They have consistently shut down journalists, writers, reporters, everybody. And what was once a very, very vibrant um, journalistic community, they took over the, the Journalist Association, that was shut down. So what you've really seen is that they've completely silenced everything. Um, Kashmiris have always resisted, but now even that news of resistance cannot come out because they have gone after every single reporter. Kashmiri reporters have either left Srinagar now reporting on other things, or they have left the country, or they have gone quiet. If you don't do any of these three, chances are you're already in prison. Yeah, really. See, I mean, it really seems like that's part of the themes that that we have been talking about. Um, with 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 the last little bit of time here, uh, I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about uh, political prisoners um, in India. Uh, you know, we, we we've touched on this a little bit. Um, talking about you know journalists being detained and and other uh other people uh being being imprisoned um I, th I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about uh uh and i i hope i'm pronouncing the name correctly uh vernon uh Gisales, um 
uh, you did you did a profile of him in in mid March. Uh, he he has been um, arrested uh, under unlawful activities act uh, in 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 what you Paulus project describes as a fabricated plot. Can you can you kind of give us like a, a a very brief overview of of his case and uh, kind of how that is a part of this ongoing uh, you know attack on on and the criminalization of uh, dissent in the Indian state. So right now, um, for those of you who are um, who are new to India and South Asia, um, India today perhaps has the most number of political prisoners and the most famous of them. And we say the most famous because at Polis Project, we actually try and track all the political prisoners. And when we say political prisoners, these are people picked up not for what they did, but who they are and what they believe. And uh, Vernon Gonzalez is one of the Bhima Karegaon 16, or they call the BK 16. So these are a group of 16 activists who were arrested without due process, without evidence, um, in what was an alleged plot uh, against the assassination of the country's prime minister, Narendra Modi. Till date, there has been no arrests. There have been um, no evidence actually produced by the government. But because these are uh, draconian UAPA laws, what you really have is a group of thinkers, writers, intellectuals, frontline defenders, professors, who've all been um, picked up and have been held uh, under the UAPA laws. So Vernon Gonzalez is a very, very, very well-respected human rights activist. Uh, he's also a professor. Uh, he's taught for a really long time. And like most people, Vernon Gonzalez, uh, most people who belong to the BK-16, uh, Gonzalez has been consistently advocating for the country's most marginalized. Uh, and he's done a lot of work around the criminal India's criminal justice system. And again, this is not the first time he's being picked up. Uh, he was picked up under the UAPA laws in 2013. In the past, he's been regularly arrested and held. Um, so this is he's this is not someone who has not been targeted before. So Vernon Gonzalez has a long history of, um, you know, respectable activism along with his career as a writer, um, as a writer, as a professor, as someone who's consistently spoken um, against, uh, for, spoken for and against the Indian state. He's also very good friends with Arun Ferreira, who's one of the other political prisoners. Um, so Ferreira and others, again, have been consistently speaking about the ways in which the Indian state, um, Indian state has been um, targeting and going after um, all kinds of dissent. So in 2018, um, the first um, be- the first of the arrests of the BK-16 happened in 2018. Um, and of course, since then, we have enough proof uh, showing that how both uh, all of these uh, political prisoners, there is the version of the state either has no merit, no evidence, and both uh, Vernon Gonzalez and others have consistently put forth their version of the story with evidence. Um, and despite of all of this, um, they continue to languish in prison. He was arrested on the, on, in, if I'm not mistaken, um, in August of 2018. And the charges against him and others uh, were under the UAPA. 
and they continue to be charged and held since 2018. Um, of course, in 2020, he was transferred to what is called the National Investigative Agency, which makes it harder for people to reach him. And consistently, every time he's applied for bail, uh, including during the COVID pandemic, it was completely, again, it was dismissed. Um, and as of today, he remains um, he remains incarcerated. And the BK-16 is a story that is just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because there's nothing that one could do. Imagine being picked up and being held since 2020. And the government still, the, the, the prosecution still hasn't presented his case. And they can continue to hold all of them for another 10 years without charges, without trial. Um, we already saw uh, Father Stan Swami, who was one of the BK-16 political prisoners who actually died within prison. Um, and he was someone who had Parkinson's. They refused to give him a straw. Um, every time these political prisoners have fallen sick, um, they haven't been given proper medical care. And of course, in early 2021, uh, Washington Post broke a story that very specifically said that Israeli spyware Pegasus was used to plant evidence in all of their computers. And uh, Vernon Gonzalez was one of them. And despite all of this, um, they continue to languish in prison. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I talk about them all the time. And every time I talk about them, I just feel... I just feel it's one of those things where there's so much injustice, there's so much illegality, so much um, violence that is being inflicted on those who continue to speak up that it's very possible that all of these prisoners might be held for years and years and years without um, there ever being a case. And, and a lot of them are quite old. So we've already lost Father Stan Swami and others have severe medical conditions. Um, so that's where we are. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know this is very depressing, but that's that's where that's where we are. No, I mean, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it is what it is, and I, I think that uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a, it's it's interesting because it really does touch on all the themes that we've been talking about. You know, the the judiciary acting through inaction uh, to ensure that. Uh, that the outcome that they want is is still going to go through, which is you know these uh, these people to be held in prison. Uh, the, uh, the the kind of crossover between India and other right wing states, like you were saying, it just it, like it like it draws all the connections together. Um, I think with the last couple of minutes, uh, maybe just just give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about Project Polis, and uh, and and also you know your Watch the State uh, uh, program, um, and and just kind of tell people a little bit about that. And how to uh, to reach you guys and and and, and where to find all of, all of your work? Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, Polis Project was founded in 2017. Um, uh, I took the idea to my fellow founders, Asim Rafiki, who's a photographer, and Francis Karekia, who is a, a scholar and a researcher. Um, uh, we know each other, all of us have done work in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it became very clear to all of us that we really needed to build an institution that was grounded in in-depth research and long-form journalism from the communities that were actually facing immense state violence. And that's how we built it out. Uh, while a lot of the work we do looks at larger South Asia, uh, we believe that communities in resistance, whether it is Ferguson, whether it is uh, the women now marching against the ban of Roe versus Wade, uh, political prisoners in India, in Pakistan, in Burma, 
um, that communities that racist have far more in common and there are ways for us to think and write about this and create means um, to center voices that are indigenous to these conflicts. And that's how Polis Project started. Watch the State is the research wing of Polis Project. And what we do is that we have work with some brilliant young researchers and journalists on the ground who continue to document and archive patterns of state violence in India. We do a bi-weekly briefing every Friday. And what we realized early on is that our ambition was not to be the New Yorker or the New York Times. Our ambition was simply to be an absolute pain in the ass of the states um, across South Asia or any violent state and hold them accountable. And we do that by being um, unabashedly political about the work we do, which is reporting the truth and making sure that those most affected by state violence have a platform to write, think, and talk about their work in a meaningful way. Um, so that's what we do. Uh, we are based out of New York. Uh, I live in New York. Um, Francesca is in, um, Francesca used to be in Afghanistan. Now she is uh, in Milan. Um, similarly, Asim is in Pakistan. Uh, and we work, we now have, um, but all our staff, uh, all of our researchers and writers are based in South Asia. And we continue to, we continue to document this work and hopefully um, try and be useful and helpful. Absolutely. And, and, and where can people find you if you want to plug your social media? Right. So yeah. uh, the best way to look at our work is thepolisproject.com. Um, and we are um, project underscore polis on Twitter. Um, we are watch the state on Twitter. Um, and again, the same thing in Instagram. Again, we are the same handles. Um, and then we are, I think we're quite easily searchable and findable. So, um, and then we have, as I said, we have a bi-weekly briefing every Friday. If you're interested, uh, Friday mornings, uh, if you're interested to tune in and listen to the recent, uh, briefings on state violence in India. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Suchitra Vijayan, thank you so much. Again, uh, check out her book, Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. That's out of, uh, Melville House Books. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, again, if you are listening live or on replay on the app, please be sure to like and subscribe uh, to the show. If you're listening on replay on uh, Spotify or Apple, follow, subscribe, like, rate, I, I don't know, do all the things uh, that can ensure that you continue uh, to get uh, notified and to get our stuff at the top of your feed. Uh, thanks a lot, and we'll see you guys next week.